1: Hello and welcome back to the Prospect interview where we meet the brightest minds and talk about the ideas that matter in politics, arts and society. I'm Tom Clark, editor of Prospect magazine and this week we're going to talk to the journalist Rachel Sylvester about the state of play with Britain's Brexit negotiations and the man who is heading them, David Frost. Unlike Boris Johnson's other better-known and wild-eyed advisor Dominic Cummings, Frost shies away from courting press attention, preferring to pull strings behind the scenes. Rachel profiled Frost for us to find out what the former diplomat really wants and whether or not he still has a chance of steering the country away from the cliff edge at the end of the Brexit transition period. So, Rachel, thanks so much for joining us and for the wonderful piece. We'll come back to David Frost in a minute, but let's just remind listeners, first of all, who maybe thought about Brexit quite a lot last year, and now much less this year, where we are with this whole process.
2: Sure. Well, it feels like we've had so many crunch Brexit weeks, doesn't it? But I think we really are now reaching the end game. So the transition period ends at the end of the year, 31st of December. And then we either sever links with the EU with a deal, a trade trade arrangement, or no deal. Uh, and those talks are coming to a head crucial summit mid-October and both sides are saying there's got to be an arrangement reached or not reached really within the next couple of weeks and we're going to know what the situation is. My sense is that Boris Johnson a bit like happened last year is now realising that no deal really would be a disaster and there's more and more of a sense coming out that there may be a pretty minimal deal but some kind of deal before the end of the year but there's a lot that could still go wrong the two crucial sticking points seem to be fishing and state aid uh, and in a way the the two sides are quite close together on the main issues but there's lots of details still to be thrashed out.
1: Okay I mean it's some um, it's amazing how this was the only issue in town as it were all of last year and now it's kind of like you know, it's about to get maybe more real for us, and yet we're talking about it so much less. The other thing that's happened, though, is even if there is a deal and some late concessions and all of that, um, this is going to be quite a hard Brexit, isn't it? It's not, we're not looking at any sort of half-in, half-out Switzerland or Norway thing.
2: No, absolutely. In fact, I spoke to one senior government advisor recently who said, you know, actually, the difference between no deal and the kind of deal we're going for isn't isn't really that great so there's going to be a huge uh, contrast for businesses and um for travelers for all of us uh, uh whatever happens at the end of the year things are going to change i think
1: but it matters as i understand it which is not expertly but it matters quite a lot for things like the car industry because if we don't get a deal then suddenly they're going to face tariffs that could wipe out and reverse their profit margins.
2: Absolutely. So even with a deal, it'll be harder for the car industry and other particularly manufacturers. But without a deal, it really could be catastrophic. At least that's what they're saying at the moment.
1: So pretty high stakes, even if like we're choosing between different things from a year ago. Um, And then you're saying that the person who could be the most influential in all of this is not the famous or maybe infamous Dominic Cummings, but this character, David Frost. And you reckon when it comes to Brexit, he might actually be more powerful than the uh, omnipotent Dominic Cummings.
2: Yes, well, he is heading the negotiations and he is the prime minister's voice in Brussels, the go between between the EU and the British government. And he's in charge of these talks um, From the British side, anyway. So he's this incredibly important character. Also, obviously, he's since also been appointed as the government's national security advisor, which shows how crucial he is for Boris Johnson. So he is an incredibly influential person, but very little known about him. He's got a reputation for being a rather dry, grey civil servant character, he's a former diplomat. Uh, When I wrote the profile, the only previous supposedly colourful details that have been discovered about him was that he was a fan of Derby County Football Club and the Canadian rock band Rush. And in fact, I spoke to his former tutor who said, you know, there are some people who come into your room who are immediately memorable. David Frost was not one of those. So he's this slightly grey character, but become incredibly powerful, particularly at the moment. (laughs)
1: <laughs> and so in terms of the CV, you sort of tell this story of him starting out as quite a conventional Whitehall climber, but then it took this twist.
2: So he, he's very interesting because he rises up the Foreign Office ladder, climbs the greasy pole. His former colleagues talk about him as a rather sort of grey character, not someone who would stand out particularly, not particularly brilliant, not particularly not brilliant, one said, you know, um... But and then he I spoke to a couple of his former bosses, people like John, Lord Kerr, John Kerr, who is the head of the diplomatic service, who said rather sneeringly, he's he was very good at taking instructions, less good at questioning instructions, which he certainly didn't mean as a compliment. Mm. Um And Peter Ricketts, the former head of the Foreign Office, said he sort of kept himself to himself a bit like sort of serial killer, you know, the sort of quiet gray Ooh. figure next door. Um but he he was never a showman, never a flamboyant character, the complete opposite of Boris Johnson. But then he goes to Brussels, he ends up working in Brussels, and he has, in his own description, a sort of Damascene conversion to Euroscepticism, which is rather extraordinary for a Foreign Office Mandarin, Foreign Office, the most pure, pro-European department in Whitehall. And he comes back by his own account from Brussels, um, really uh, disillusioned with the institutions and with the European dream and convinced that the United Kingdom needs to forge a more independent identity.
1: Mm. And um, what do we make of, I mean, do you accept this account that like, he went to Brussels, saw how rotten it all was and didn't like it? Or is there a, I mean, was he he frustrated in some way in, in career terms?
2: Well, what was really fascinating talking to people, so he made a speech, uh, when was it, in January, where he sets out this sort of narrative of the Damascene conversion and has all this kind of highly Brexiteer language about, you know, independent Britain and sovereignty and de Gaulle, Churchill, all kinds of uh, rhetoric. But talking to people who've known him for, in some cases, 20 years, 25 years, they're slightly baffled by this account. And, you know, one said to me, he's never really, he just doesn't understand where this Euroscepticism comes from. He's spoken to him, you know, many times over the years, and he's never picked up any of this, not even a hint. Um, So there's, there's, others feel that he's really been trying to curry favour with the Leave Brigade in Downing Street uh, and that he was rather miffed at being overlooked for promotion at the Foreign Office. And then, you know, this is his way back into the corridors of power.
1: So what you haven't mentioned is he completely left Whitehall, didn't he, and went to work for the Scotch Whiskey Association?
2: exactly um which is the sort of thing that um diplomats have done before but normally at the end of their career but what's rather extraordinary about frost is he goes off and then he comes back in an even more elevated role and a couple of people said to me that they think you know now he's in charge it's almost like he's getting his revenge on the foreign office Mm -hmm. by pursuing this hard brexit agenda um you know one said to me was the effect of, you know, he's saying to the Foreign Office, I'm in charge now, sort of Yabu sucks to you, screw you, kind of thing. And there is this sense of the slight chippiness. Um, He's this outsider, insider figure, is how one um, former colleague put it to me, that he knows how the systems work, he knows how the establishment operates, but he's outside of it, which actually I kind of think is... A parallel for the whole government they see themselves as these kind of disruptors shaking up the the elites although actually they themselves are of the establishment of the elite um Mm. Mm. so there is that sort of internal conflict in frost and in the johnson administration
1: i mean it's very hard isn't it to work out like what he really thinks about the policy regardless of like he doesn't like uh the establishment he feels a bit chippy about even if he's cut from the same cloth really um, because you say that when he was at the Scotch Whiskey Association, he was busy um lobbying for a kind of single market we're going to be like norway option, and we'll we'll follow the rules and do what we're told and but then we'll get the full trading perks
2: well, exactly, but then after the um referendum, he come he starts making these slightly more political speeches, so he does one speech um, when Cameron's trying to negotiate uh, over immigration and he sort of talks about shifting the Overton window on Europe policy which is that exactly the same phrase that the left-wingers under Jeremy Corbyn used to use about the Labour Party and there's this sense again of the kind of slightly revolutionary figure and that was what got him noticed by Boris Johnson as foreign secretary and and so then he was brought back um, to to the Foreign Office under Johnson as a much more political figure than he'd been as a diplomat.
1: I see. So so he's, he certainly seems to have the political nails to work out how to say things that get noticed by the people who matter, even if he's not cultivated a general public profile. But, you know, if he can see as a man who's was for a time trading with... Uh, trading in Scotch whiskey, that you don't want these barriers coming up because it will make everything a bit harder... Uh, for for whiskey manufacturers and presumably like that same sort of argument applies across the economy Um, so you might think that he would be even if he's not good at questioning instructions that he might be kind of quietly kind of um, diluting some of the rhetoric a bit behind the scenes and yet you tell the story that last year when we got the little breakthrough with Boris Johnson and Leah Varadkar, the Irish Taoiseach on checks on the Irish border, Frost, I think you say, wasn't keen to make any concession
2: whatsoever. Well, I was told by three different people, actually, that he was overruled on that by Boris Johnson, uh, and that it was when Johnson had that meeting with Leah Varadkar, if you remember, in the um, wedding hotel venue, where they had a sort of romantic walk in the gardens and struck this extraordinary deal which involved effectively the prime minister agreeing to a border in the irish sea something that theresa may had said no british prime minister could ever agree to total u-turn total capitulation in the view of many by boris johnson but frost had been sticking to what had been until that point the government line and he's described by those who know him well as a rather inflexible or even obdurate figure one said he was like a brick wall you know he'll stick to the line doggedly, keep going and then in the end it was johnson who had to swoop in with that last minute flexibility and the sort of politician to politician sorted it out but with a with a complete cave-in so something that a you know diplomat official couldn't really do i suppose but now it feels like there may be something similar gearing up that the, the sort of political intervention will, will lead to uh, more of a compromise, but we'll see.
0: One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes.
2: Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt.
0: Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health
1: But, I mean, you know, if, if we'd crashed out then, it would have, I guess, been even worse because there was less time to prepare. There would have been a big argument with the EU on other things that would have made a trade deal later hard to come by. So it's pretty... It's pretty concerning that the guy you've put in charge of the diplomacy was the one who was against that small diplomatic breakthrough or, or big capitulation, as you put it, last time. I mean, it does sound like, unless there's incredible political pressure this time we're not going to expect any kind of um imaginative um, way in which everyone can go the extra mile at the end, courtesy of David Frost.
2: That's, I think that's the thing about him, that everyone says he lacks imagination. So he may be good at obeying orders, following through on instructions, going through the list, sticking to the line. Um, he's clearly been appointed by Downing Street as someone they can trust, he's one of them, he's a Brexiteer in their view, they feel they can rely on him not to go off piste and not to um, sort of go behind their backs in the way that Ollie Robbins, Theresa May's um, equivalent was felt to have done by the Brexiteers. And he's seen as a sort of true believer, so he's trusted in that way, but perhaps lacking the kind of flexibility and finesse so in the end, I think it will be a political decision. If a deal is done, it will be something, you know, that comes from higher than Frost.
1: Uh, so, I mean, it really is back to Boris Johnson in a way, you know, that, that this guy's just going to be there and, and, and play credibly hard line as, as long as he can, by the sounds of things. So moving back to Boris then, um, I mean what do we make of the way he's positioning himself there's still all this there's less talk now about brexit there's more about levelling up and maybe energy and industrial policies that might rely on a more interventionist government approach and some talk about um very public talk about maybe breaking the rule in some respects if europe don't help us out on this um, deal putting it all together does it sound to you like Boris Johnson's getting himself into a position where politically he will be able to make a concession like he did last year or do you think he's boxing himself in?
2: Well what's really fascinating about um, this came out again in his conference speech is the big row over state aid it's extraordinary that a conservative government is sort of going to the wall on the right to spend taxpayers money to prop up Failing businesses or pick winners. It's, it's a really extraordinary thing. And I think there's something wider going on here, talking to senior Tories, particularly veteran Tories, um, former cabinet ministers and things. There's this real sense that this isn't a conservative government. It's that one um, former cabinet minister said to me last week, actually, I'm a conservative. This isn't a conservative government. You know, conservatives don't Threaten to break international law. Conservatives don't sort of rip up international agreements and similarly, conservatives don't normally um, go to the wall over state aid uh, and wanting to, you know, spend billions of taxpayers' money left, right and centre. And I think Boris Johnson has got himself so um, committed to this uh, winning, keeping on side the red wall seats that flipped from Labour at the last election. And he's I think that um, spending is key to that and that's why where state aid comes into it partly Uh, but it's created all these kinds of internal tensions within the Tory party where traditional Tories are saying this just isn't conservatism you know conservatives want to protect institutions and here you've got downing street you know bashing the judiciary biffing the bbc and going to the war on the impartial civil service so the state aid row plays into this much wider thing and actually i think you know brexit itself is a is a rather unconservative policy it's a it's a radical revolutionary thing um conservatives by definition want to conserve and uh boris johnson and Dominic Cummings that favoured creative destruction I mean
1: when you think of the the, the way the um, when we were growing up you know the, the Tories used to caricature the the, the old Labour years about you know it was bailing out it was big public debt and here we are with public debt going over 100% of GDP and as you say um increasing noise from the Conservative Party about which companies it should be allowed to bail out.
2: I know, it's incredible. And I I think the next few months are going to be absolutely fascinating, The, the sort of tensions growing between Rishi Sunak, who's a much more traditional Conservative, particularly on these issues, and Boris Johnson. So behind the scenes, I'm told the Treasury is pushing very, very hard for there to be a deal on Brexit before the end of the year. They really don't want, even more than previously, the Treasury's always you know, being worried about no deal on economic grounds, but even more now with the COVID economic crisis, the double whammy would be, they feel such a disaster. And then you're going to have a real blowout, I think, at some point between Chancellor and Prime Minister over public spending.
1: You talked about fisheries becoming a kind of, you know, slightly flag waving kind of issue. And you talk about state aid, which is maybe a more strategic issue, given, you know, if you're going to try and back businesses to do different things in, in, in these seats. Do you think Boris Johnson is capable then of, um, of, of saying, actually, you no, know, we're gonna to have to calm some of this down and uh, because, you know, Rishi Sunak's telling me that we really do need to get get a deal. I'm gonna to have to follow some of these rules.
2: We'll see, he's very capable of doing U-turns. We've found out multiple times. I spoke to somebody in um, Downing Street the other day who said they just couldn't see a deal falling on fish. But I mean I'm not sure I think there's different factions within Downing Street and within the government uh and there's signs of movement already we'll see i i it's 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 nearing the end game, so predictions are very dangerous, as you know, but we'll see it's he's very capable of he's very very capable of reversing absolutely everything Boris Johnson and flip flopping but it
1: sounds from what you're saying that just like you know if they really were getting ready to drive us off the cliff, then um, they wouldn't be giving signs maybe that they're ready to move on things. So it's...
2: Yeah, the the interesting thing is what the whole business with the internal market bill was about. So all the very, very sort of um, high stakes gamble of saying... Having a cabinet minister announced to Parliament that the government was prepared to break international law, completely extraordinary scenes, huge backlash from senior Conservatives in the Lords and in the Commons. Um,
1: Former Prime ministers, all of them stood up to condemn it.
2: Exactly. Incredible. But you know what one um, former cabinet minister said to me last week was, actually um, was that a big, that was just a huge diversionary tactic to sound incredibly Brexiteer and actually cover up the fact that they were preparing to climb down under. And Boris Johnson is a bit like a conjurer. So wherever his hands are, the action is going on elsewhere, You know, and that it's the sort of um, a conjuring trick so much of the time in politics. Uh, So I think it could have been a diversionary tactic to divert from a potential compromise coming down the track.
1: Okay well let's have a final thought then on um, what David Frost says and his um, rise about Whitehall where we keep hearing uh, another not very conservative song about hard rain don't we? It's going to be hitting <laughs> the Mandarin class. Uh, I imagine this is coming from Dominic Cummings but um, Does the fact that someone like David Frost, who doesn't have a background, say, in national security, as you've mentioned, is now national security adviser. Is this is this a really big shift in the way, you know, could it be that we'd move towards an American system where you don't have Sir Humphrey, but you just have whoever the president wants to bring in this month?
2: Yeah. So for for the Whitehall establishment, this was a real both a slap in the face and a very dangerous step in a politicization direction. Uh, so people like Peter Ricketts, the former head of the Foreign Office and former national security advisor himself, told me he thought this was a very dangerous move and that it was part of this sort of political, politicization of Whitehall. Uh, and particularly when you're doing that with national security, that's particularly worrying. Um, and I think that's right. There needs to be an impartiality and a, an objectivity and a clear sense that you can trust. There's somebody trusted and independent on national security. Uh, and I think this is, you know there is a real danger that the government is like um, is it, it's, it's a culture of one of us and cronyism uh, and that isn't how you get the best people. It's not promotion on merit or on competence or on experience. It's about what do you think about Brexit and how loyal are you to the Prime Minister? And that's not how you get efficient government, as we're seeing.
1: And so on the bombshell thought that this might not be a government and administration of the first 11, um, we'll draw a line under that there. Um, Thanks um, very much, Rachel, for joining us. Uh, Do look out uh, for Rachel's profile of David Frost, which is on our website. um, So you can pick that up there. Um, If you enjoyed the podcast, please do leave us a rating and a review. And that's it. Goodbye. Stay safe. And we'll see you again next week.